The briefing is brought to you in association with the Sustainable Cities in Action Forum at Expo City Dubai. The Sustainable Cities in Action Forum at Expo City Dubai is a place for city leaders, developers, architects and designers to come together and innovate for the future of urban spaces. It's an opportunity for the Global South to convene in the Global South. It's a testbed for real-world solutions that will shape the future of people and planet. You can hear from the innovative thinkers and inspirational voices that drove the narrative at this year's edition by listening to Monocle's special episodes of The Briefing, recorded live at Expo City Dubai in March. Find and listen to the shows now at monocle.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Sustainable Cities in Action Forum 2024. Collaborate. Innovate. Transform. You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 13th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and a warm welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up on today's programme, a breakthrough at COP28. Over the last two weeks, we have worked very hard to secure a better future for our people and our planet. A resolution is adopted and consensus is achieved. Will it be workable enough, though, for the world to make it happen? Also coming up, Australia goes against its ally, the US, to vote for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza at the UN General Assembly. And... The brave people of Ukraine have defied Putin's will at every turn. Backed by the strong and unwavering support of the United States and our allies and partners of more than 50 nations... Biden gives his support, but was Volodymyr Zelensky's trip to Washington enough to secure more funding for Ukraine's war against Russia? That's all coming up right here on The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. So in the end, predictably, it came down to the wording. The agreed declaration at this year's COP28 calls on all nations to transition away from fossil fuels to avert the worst effects of climate change. It's been heralded as ambitious. But by leaving out an explicit commitment to phase out or phase down oil, gas and coal, the agreement has been criticised for being too watered down and also full of loopholes. Well, Suzanne Lynch is Global Playbook author and associate editor at Politico and a regular voice on Monocle Radio. Welcome back, Suzanne. Hi there. So this was the usual late night, down-to-the-wire, fervent um, negotiation situation again, wasn't it? It certainly was. Um, Sultan al-Jaber had uh, really said that he wanted to finish this around 11am on Tuesday. In the end, it was about 24 hours after that, which by COP standards isn't too long, um, but it had become clear throughout Tuesday uh, that the original text that had been circulated was not uh, acceptable to a lot of people. The EU, for example, threatened to walk away if changes were not made. So the pressure was then on. And right through Tuesday night, we saw these uh, talks going on privately um, with different delegations and meeting and um, Al Jaber and the UN negotiators meeting with certain constituencies. And then 
this morning quite quickly, really, uh, the, the new draft was published and then they held what was called a plenary session where everybody agrees, he bring, agreed, he brings down the gavel uh, and that's that. Um, so it really, in a way, uh, did happen quite quickly in the end, but ultimately, you know, a pretty dramatic couple of weeks and they do have something to show for it after that. I mean, is there for a sense that the COP28 will go down as one of the most successful gatherings? I think it probably will. Um, not quite as successful, for example, as something like like Paris, uh, which is really kind of the benchmark back in 2015. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the significance looking at the big picture here is that for the first time in what three decades of these climate talks, you have a specific reference to fossil fuels. And um, that was never there before, that language. Uh, because of the resistance of many fossil fuel producers. Um, and one of the issues, one of the, we can see it in other parts of the UN, is that you need to get consensus. Uh, so everybody has to be able to sign up to a text that they can accept. Um, so it's a bit of a, cl- a case of glass half empty, glass half, half full. Yes, they got a, a commitment to a transition away from fossil fuels. Uh, but on the other hand, there had been expectations that perhaps they would commit to phasing out fossil fuels, but ultimately they did not get that language. A lot of countries, uh, led particularly by Saudi Arabia, just were not prepared to do that. Um, so it ended up somewhere in the middle, but but undoubtedly historic to some extent. So tell us a little bit more about how workable this commitment is to, to transition. It's clearly a word that there could be complete consensus on. Yes, exactly. So it does say um, they need to accelerate this shift away in a what they say a just, orderly, and equitable manner. Um, what would be key, actually, though, is in 2025, countries have to come up with new uh, kind of national targets, and they've been busy working on those anyway. Uh, but they're going to have to submit national climate action plans by 2025, and I think that's going to be a big focus now. I think a big uh, focus also will be business and big industry. One of the characteristics of this COP was there was a huge representation of, of corporates, um, but also of, of big industry um, and of, of oil giants. Um, that was criticised, obviously. It was also criticised the very fact that the, the president of these talks was the head of a one of the biggest oil companies in the world. Um, but ultimately, they argued that you need to get these big polluters to the table. And if you can get them to commit in some way, they need to be part of the solution. That seems to have paid off to an extent, even though I think there are concerns that next year it's going to be held in Azerbaijan, another huge exporter of oil. And are we getting in the situation where the countries that are hosting COP are actually these big oil producers uh, rather than the ones most affected by climate change? It's funny because this has been the uh, obviously the agreement or the, the, the resolution which is getting the most praise as being one of compromise and practicality and workability. But the number of voices which have been dissenting has been quite considerable, hasn't it? I mean, just reading about the Alliance of Small Island States saying it sees a litany of loopholes which doesn't speak specifically to fossil fuel phase-out. The fact that the phase-out has been removed from the from the text is is something that, quite, that many um, campaigners have said is, is just frankly not good enough. Yes, I mean, it's significant, the small island countries, and they're the countries that are in real existential threat from the, the, the you know rising sea levels and other effects of climate change. And they were very critical this morning. The representative of Samoa, basically speaking for the group, made the point that they weren't actually even in the room, their delegate, when, you know, this all moved very quickly. 
and um, Sultan Al Jaba brought down the the gavel on this. And so they're not happy really with this. Uh, you've also got other figures like Mary Robinson, chair of the elders, who's obviously been a big uh, critic of the fact that this was held in the UAE. Um, she said, you know, while she welcomes, you know, the, the signaling in this text, it, it falls short by failing to commit to a full fossil fuel phase out. So you, you're absolutely right there for a lot of people. You know, is this a fudge? The fact that oil, you know, oil, gas, you know, you've got a lot of countries even continuing expanding exploration. And the fact that this is still happening at a time when we have this climate crisis to many people is just not good enough. Suzanne Lynch, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. The time here in London is just nudging eight minutes past midday. Here's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs now with the day's other news headlines. Sophie. Thanks, Emma. Israel says it has carried out 250 strikes in Gaza in the past 24 hours. Hamas officials say that 50 people have been killed in the latest wave of airstrikes, while an overnight storm has worsened conditions for the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who have fled their homes. The Polish president has sworn in the country's new government, completing its shift away from the nationalist rule of the last eight years. New Prime Minister Donald Tusk, who is a former president of the European Council, has pledged to improve relations with the EU, restore the rule of law and increase support for Ukraine. And the leaders of China and Vietnam have signed dozens of cooperation pacts following a two-day visit by Chinese President Xi Jinping to the Southeast Asian country. The two countries held their strategic decision to strengthen ties in areas including rail links, security and digital data. Historically, China and Vietnam have been at odds over disputed claims in the South China Sea. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Emma. Thanks very much indeed, Sophie. Now, the UN General Assembly has voted overwhelmingly to demand an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. The resolution is not binding and will probably have little palpable effect on the continuing conflict between Israel and Hamas. Israel unsurprisingly voted against the resolution along with the United States. But one nation which apparently broke ranks was Australia. Litika Burke is a journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and Age. I'm delighted to say she's in the studio with me now. Good afternoon, Litika. Hello, Emma. Just explain to us what happened. Well, it was quite a surprise when we saw the result of this because Australia did not just abstain but actually voted uh, for the resolution to demand a ceasefire. What's been more interesting is the language that the government of Australia has used to justify why it did indeed break ranks with its uh, major security ally, its biggest security ally, the United States, and also its AUKUS partners, the United States and the United Kingdom. And it has come up with this form of language called a sustainable ceasefire. And it is arguing that it simply wants to see the return of humanitarian pauses that they believe would then create the pathway to such a sustainable ceasefire. Now, that's very muddled language because humanitarian pauses are separate to a ceasefire. And Israel has long argued that a ceasefire would simply be doing Hamas's bidding and allowing it to regroup. So within that context, the Australian government has certainly made its decision. And I think this signal is as much one uh, internationally as it is domestically. And it's probably moreover domestically uh, Um, a signal. Indeed. I mean, let's talk about the domestic signal. I mean, to back the United States in its refusal of this of this declaration of this resolution what message does would that send politically at home so it comes within the context of 
many members within the government, it's a Labor government in Australia, uh, many members within the Cabinet, many members within the caucus or the party room of MPs, are deeply uncomfortable with the Australian government's stance so far. Now, it is, of course, a very difficult political balance for, say, the United Kingdom government to strike as well. Uh, But one of the more problematic issues is that the two people with the most power in the Australian government, Anthony Albanese, the Prime Minister, and the Foreign Minister, Penny Wong, are factional allies, and they come from the left of the party. And so this Prime Minister is under a lot of strain and pressure from the left over a myriad of issues. And this is just the latest, where... He has sought to strike a pose as a more centrist, a little a quasi right wing, if you want to uh, show some ankle there, um, sort of leader. And that has been a great disappointment to left wing voters who overwhelmingly chucked out the former right wing government just 18 months ago. Now, Australia is pretty much heading back into election cycle. We have three year terms. So it's a very, very short window in which governments get to spend political capital. And within 18 months, Anthony Albanese will be facing the ballot box. He only holds government with a three-seat majority, and two of those seats are borderline Greens Labor seats, and they could easily fall at the next government. You mentioned the domestic political capital. Well, let's talk more about the relationship with the United States. And you you said it's part, you know, the Australia and the, and the United States are part of the AUKUS alliance, which is a hugely powerful and influential group. How much capital is Anthony... Albanese risking by going against the United States here? Or is the Israel-Hamas conflict of such a scale and an issue which is so apart from the general relationships that actually this is a gamble that Albanese feels that Australia can afford to take? I think that's certainly the calculation he's made in, in registering this vote in the UN. It is a problem, I think it is going to be a source of tension between Canberra and Washington. And it will certainly be noted because this comes within the context of Australia going to the United Kingdom and the United States, begging for their submarine capability because we as a country actually let our submarine capability gap uh, get to a point where we could have no cover um, at a time where China is increasingly aggressive in our region. The other thing that was very clever, however, in the way that Australia has positioned itself is it's joined with the two other Five Eyes members, Canada and New Zealand. And the three prime ministers, uh, one of whom is conservative, Christopher Luxon, and actually only just elected, uh, so has a lot of political capital to spend at this point in the, in the cycle, you would think, put out a joint statement um, together saying this is why they voted the way they did. So it's not entirely Australia out on its own. There you see three members of the Five Eyes uh, who have also voted uh, actually in a majority in, in the Club of Five because the Five Eyes, of course, comprises the US and the United Kingdom as well. Now, that's an intelligent sharing relationship. There's no suggestion that this affects anything like that. But it does just show this continued breakdown within that club of alliances. We've had some fractures in within that over China in recent years. We're now seeing that on Israel. It's also true to say that this comes against the backdrop of the own the Biden administration also toughening up its rhetoric on Israel. You know, its window and Biden's own political capital is also narrowing. Um, but to see this happening 
out of concert with the United States. Uh, that is certainly going to alarm a lot at home. And I think finally, the other the really interesting point to add here is that this is not bipartisan. Most of these foreign policy positions in Australia are struck in a bipartisan way. And the opposition in Australia does not support uh, calling for a ceasefire at this point in time. And so that's also a really interesting dynamic to watch because foreign policy could become a much more live issue than it normally should or could be or would be at an election. When you see the joining up of Canada and New Zealand and Australia, we've had the Australian Foreign Affairs Minister Penny Wong saying that this joint statement had been under discussion for some time. Is there a sense that knowing that Joe Biden, well, indeed yesterday, said that Benjamin Netanyahu, the, the, the Israeli prime minister, needs to change and that the, 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 the way that Israel is running its military campaign is needs to be altered in order to preserve life. Is there a sense that perhaps that by joining up, they could perhaps not just sort of protect themselves from an international stub, snub, but they could indeed influence the United States in some way? I think Australia, I think that would be overestimating the capability of where Australia will influence the United States on Israel. Ultimately, Israel really only cares about one partner's influence, and that's the United States. Now, will the United States take... Uh, guidance from Australia? Probably not. Um, And I certainly don't think on Israel, maybe on some other foreign policy challenges, yes, but not on this one. If anything, this is going to be more of an irritant in the relationship, uh, and it's no more serious than that. But certainly, Labor in Australia has done very well to give itself cover by joining with its other allies. Liti Kapurk, thank you as ever for joining me in the studio on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Briefing. Dozens of people in the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, have been injured following a wave of missile strikes by Russia. There are reports that a kindergarten and hospital buildings were damaged in the attacks overnight. The strikes happened just after the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky had wrapped up his two-day visit to Washington, in which he tried to persuade US lawmakers to commit to sending more military help in the war against Russia. Washington correspondent Simon Mark sent us this report. This time last week, we did not know Volodymyr Zelensky was coming to Washington. His visit to the White House was announced only on Sunday, an effort by President Biden to use the Ukrainian leader's force of personality to try and break the gridlock in Washington over fresh funding for Kiev's armed forces. Welcome back. Thank you so much. Welcome back to the White House. Thank you so much. And the Oval Office. And, uh... It's great to be at your side once again. We're going to stay at your side. The president welcomed his visitor to the White House, the two of them seated on either side of a raging blaze in the Oval Office fireplace. And President Biden sought to light another fire underneath Republicans on Capitol Hill, warning them that time is running out to get more military support moving to Kiev. Congress needs to pass a supplemental funding for Ukraine before they break the holiday recess before they give Putin the greatest Christmas gift they could possibly give him. And uh, so because we've seen what happens when dictators don't pay the price for the damage and the death and the destruction they cause, and they keep going when no price is paid. The threats to America, to Europe and the world will only keep rising if we don't act. 
President Zelensky, who spent the morning holding talks with leaders of both parties on Capitol Hill, echoed the president's concern. But he also sought to overcome the notion that Ukrainian armed forces have stalled in their efforts to push the Russians back. He told reporters he has a military strategy for 2024 and believes there is very much still a path to victory for his country. Ukraine can win. Our goals for 24 are clear. Take away Russia's superiority and disrupt their offensive operations. I think it's real. But reality on Capitol Hill is that funding for Ukraine is now being held hostage by Republicans, including many traditional foreign policy hawks in the Senate. They want to give Ukraine more money and vote additional funding for Israel that is contained in the president's $160 billion request. But they insist they will not back it unless President Biden spends some of that money on much tougher policing of America's border with Mexico, seen of a record influx of migrants over the last several months. Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina is a Republican sitting on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The world is on fire. Multiple fronts and getting worse every day. There will be no assistance to other nations who are deserving until we assist our own nation. You're really robust when it comes to Ukraine, and I'm with you. But when it comes to our border, you're playing a game of doing the least amount possible to pick 10 or 12 of us off. It ain't happening. That line in the sand led to crisis talks on Capitol Hill, even as the two presidents were meeting at the White House. President Biden's Director of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, spent Tuesday afternoon locked away with senators from both parties, trying to engineer a compromise that would bring the funding bill over the finishing line. Progress was reportedly made, but no final deal struck. There's more work to be done, and there are some Republicans who object even to the compromise. They actually brought Zelensky over to talk to our military. Are you kidding me? And try to look like they're trying to get the military on their side. Oh, you have to do this or the Russians are going to be in, you know, Warsaw next. Steve Bannon, former President Donald Trump's political advisor on his own daily webcast. He reflects the opinion of many Republicans in the House of Representatives and expresses it in colorful terms. Screw Ukraine. Here's here's the work we got to do in Ukraine. Hey, how about this? Nothing. Zero. Zelensky's not going to get any money and anybody that would sit there and try to give him money should be turfed out. That is a clear indication that as America's presidential election campaign moves into higher gear, President Biden's likely rival in the race will continue to accuse him of caring more about Ukraine's border with Russia than he does about America's border with its own neighbours. Flanked by Volodymyr Zelensky at Tuesday afternoon's White House press conference, President Biden urged Republicans to think about the fact that pro-Kremlin TV anchors in Moscow have been celebrating the Senate its failure so far to get the funding bill passed. If you're being celebrated by Russian propagandists, it might be time to rethink what you're doing. History, history will judge harshly those who turn their back on freedom's cause. Today, Ukraine's freedom is on the line. But if we don't stop Putin, it will endanger the freedom of everyone. And would-be aggressors everywhere will be emboldened to try to take 
what they can by force. The president described it as stunning that America has reached the point where there is even doubt about its determination to stand by Ukraine. And he said he worries about the message the current standoff is sending to the rest of the world regarding America's position of global leadership. It is unclear whether there is enough time now for Congress to pass the legislation before Christmas, even if a deal is finally done over immigration. President Zelensky returns to Kiev with $200 million of fresh aid unveiled by President Biden during their Oval Office meeting, but perhaps wondering how much more will follow. For Monocle Radio, I'm Simon Marks in Washington. For listening to that is Jenny Mathers, a senior lecturer in international politics at Aberystwyth University. Good afternoon, Jenny. Good afternoon. Now, your reaction to Zelensky's visit, I mean, the questions being asked is, Is his visit, are his powers of persuasion enough when at the moment the funding for Ukraine is being held hostage within a domestic immigration row in the US? Absolutely. I mean, I think think Zelensky's visit will have served some symbolic purposes and it will certainly have given the Biden administration the opportunity to express again their support for Ukraine and to make these sort of pleas over the heads of of the the congressmen who and women who are, are blocking this uh, this bill, um, but I don't think it's going to make a tiny bit of difference to uh, those Republican members of Congress who are standing in the way because they are um, very determined to get some con- not just sort of minor concessions but actually very significant concessions and policy changes from the Biden administration on the the U.S. Mexico border issue, and um, they have really no incentive to to rush to a compromise uh, decision. You know, it's, they, they don't mind how long it takes. Um, and so I don't think it's going to have made a difference to the negotiations in that sense, no. Meanwhile, in Ukraine, moments, hours after um, Volodymyr Zelensky had finished his trip to Washington, a series of airstrikes um, were launched on the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv. More than 50 people were hurt. Clearly a sign that Russia is watching the Ukrainian president and sending messages. Absolutely. So this is actually the second um, set of missiles attacks that we've seen on Kyiv this week. And it's really a, a return to uh, times that perhaps we had hoped uh, we had left behind in terms of the, the capital of Ukraine coming under regular attack. Um, but it's it's clear that the, the Russian leaders uh, understand very well the dynamics that are happening in, in Washington. And they are urging, you know, they are taking advantage of this opportunity to put more pressure on the Ukrainians by demonstrating that, that the Russians are determined to carry on uh, by trying to, to push them harder um, on the understanding that, you know, U.S. support is not going to be as strong as it has been. Um, and of course, if Trump is elected uh, president in November next year, um, then it may prove to be non-existent. Meanwhile, um, there's an article in Reuters today reporting the U.S. intelligence um, assessment of the cost to Russia, not financially, but in terms of people. Um, There's a suggestion or an estimation that 90% of the personnel that Russia had when the conflict began are either now dead or injured. That uh, amounts to 315,000 people. Yeah, it's quite an extraordinary figure and proportion. And it, it does reveal just how devastating this war has been to Russia, because although it has obviously devastated Ukraine in, in many ways, um, Russia is paying a very high price. Um, and, you know, the, the problem is that, that Putin doesn't show any signs of being worried about paying this price. 
um, you know, efforts to recruit more soldiers continue. And it seems quite likely that uh, after he is reelected in March of next year, there's going to be another wave of mobilization. Um, so, you know, there's no hesitation to throw more people uh, into the conflict, conflict uh, even though many of them will, will come away injured or, or won't come away at all. And indeed, what is the effect of having such a huge swathe of a demographic, namely predominantly young men, being um, just devastated by this war? Well, it's, it's it's very bad news for for Russia for its its demographics. It's very bad news for its economy um, because, of course, when Putin announced the September 2022 mobilization, um, tens of thousands, maybe as many as a hundred thousand or more young men left Russia. Some of them have come back, but many of them have not. And so, in addition to the the men who've been killed and injured in the war, there are those who fled the country and so are not, you know, they're contributing to the economy. Um, so it's been a huge, huge loss for the country. And yet, you know, there, there is this determination in Moscow to continue. Um, so, yes, it's it's very perverse set of policies. Jenny Mathers, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. What kind of city do you want to live in? Every week on The Urbanist, we delve into the biggest questions about urban living and meet the people championing change in our cities. From star architects to designosauruses, protected views to landfills, river walks and sidewalks, wayfinding and cycle highways, the city is alive and kicking. So how can we make them better places to live in? The other great city creation, of course, is sex. Young people go to cities to have a good time and to enjoy themselves and to meet their life partners and maybe a few other people on the way. Join me, Andrew Tuck, every Thursday at 2000 hours London time for a brand new episode. Or subscribe to the podcast and listen as you go. The Urbanist, the show that knows its good mares from its planning nightmares. Finally, on today's programme, a look at the day's business news. Victoria Scholar is head of investment at the British stockbroker Interactive Investor. A very good afternoon. Welcome to Monocle Radio, Victoria. Afternoon. Thanks for having me. Um, good to have you with us. Now, let's cast our minds back to Sunday, where Argentina's new far-right president uh, gave rather a firebrand speech at his inauguration. He said, there's no money. There's going to be a programme of harsh austerity measures. Do we know what these measures are yet? Uh, well, he said that one of the measures could be that he's going to devalue the currency, the peso, by more than 50%, which, of course, would be very dramatic. Uh, that's against the US dollar. So it would then be worth, uh, so it'd be 800 pesos to a dollar um, from under 400 pesos a dollar. And this is all part of his new plan for uh, economic shock therapy. So he's trying to uh, carry out drastic moves. But actually, uh, this plan has been welcomed by the IMF, uh, which is quite interesting. Um, we've also heard that the economy minister, Luis Caputo, is planning major cuts to public spending, including cutting subsidies and freezing some government contracts. Uh, but he has warned that the economy will be worse off uh, in the first place presumably before getting better uh, longer term. Uh, but Argentina has struggled with hyperinflation. Prices have gone up by nearly 150% over the past year. And it's got uh, tens of billions of dollars in debt uh, due to the IMF. Um, just looking at what he was like during the campaign trail, Millet was, uh, I think we often saw him with a chainsaw um, as he was trying to get attention and get votes. That clearly worked for him. 
taking a chainsaw to the Argentinian <laughs> economy, is that, does that seem to be going to be a slightly more cool-headed and indeed effective plan? <laughs> well, I think he's uh, not scared of saying what he wants and taking drastic action. So uh, take this currency move as an example. You know, it's not typical in any way to see uh, a government devalue their currency by 50%. Um, but he's arguing that this is the drastic action that is required because Argentina is in such a tough spot. Let's move on um, to retail and to Zara's owner Inditex. Um, the presence of Inditex on the the high streets is quite astonishing when you work out uh, which shops belong to Inditex. In the run-up to Christmas, or as the, as the, the, the credit crunch is biting and, and people are spending less, is that being reflected in, in, the, in the speed of Inditex's growth? Yes, it is. I mean, it's recorded uh, net profit in the nine months of 4.1 billion euros, which is around what analysts were expecting. But what we've seen is that uh, sales have been slowing this year versus last year, both in-store and online. Uh, We've seen sales growth of 11% versus 19% in the same period last year. So even though it's got a pretty intelligent strategy, and like you say, lots of brands like Zara and others, uh, it's not immune to those macroeconomic pressures, uh, like the slowdown in the consumer uh, and the broader uh, weak economic backdrop. But it has managed to uh, navigate some of those pressures a bit better than its rival H&M. And that's been reflected in Inditex's share price, which is uh, up quite strongly this year. It's up by about 50% um, compared to a more tepid gain for H&M. And indeed, it's expected to grow and it's expecting robust returns next year, isn't it? Yes, it is. And we've already seen um, some pretty strong indications of how performance has been doing over the Christmas period. Uh, We've seen that sales have uh, performed well up 14% in the sixth week to the 11th of uh, December, and it's also raised its um, outlook for profit margins. Um, So perhaps the golden quarter is going to provide that sort of key tailwind to the business that uh, it may not have received um, throughout the rest of the year. Victoria Scholar, thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing. And that's all the time we have for today's programme. Many thanks to my guests and producers Lillian Fawcett and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researcher was Naroma Ekwa and our studio manager was Callan McLean. The Briefing's back tomorrow and uh, for now from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. Music.